0: Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places.
1: It's no longer a cute kid's thing. We're not talking it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown anymore. We are now talking something that is absolutely terrifying.
0: Fear is an emotion we often try to avoid. In many respects, our suppression of fear leaves us less capable of dealing with it when it does rear its ugly head. That's why the famous quote from George Adair states, Everything you've ever wanted is sitting on the other side of fear. To overcome life's obstacles, we must gain mastery over fear, and if it were that easy, well, we'd all have everything we've ever wanted. This is where Halloween comes in, this ghoulish and devilish holiday offers us a chance to grapple and engage with our fears, to embrace ideas that ordinarily we'd shy away from. Death ghosts, the unknown. And in doing so, we realise just how compelling it can be to face your fears. There's something primal about the sense of excitement you feel when stepping out of your comfort zone, like walking into a haunted house, despite your better judgement. But for this discussion, the most pertinent part of that George Adair quote is, the other side what is on the other side, surely, in the case of Halloween, not the things that we want. The story of Halloween is a rich tapestry of folklore, cultural adaptation, and religious propaganda. The author, Lisa Morton, has written many, many books on the subject, including Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween, and she's a six-time winner of the Bram Stoker Award. Lisa truly is a Halloween expert, and I'm delighted to say that she's my guest today. Chapter 1. Origins Our love for the modern-day version of Halloween sort of crept up on us here in the UK. There was a time in the not-too-distant past when the 5th of November was of much greater interest. The driving narrative of this time of year was the celebration of the demise of Guy Fawkes and his plot to blow up Parliament. And while those celebrations continue ghosts, witches and goblins have taken the spotlight. It's not surprising Halloween has it all. Whatever you're looking for in a festival or a celebration, it has something for you. UK celebrations have very much become an extension of America's festival of consumerism. In fact, we've borrowed so much of American tradition, you might believe that they invented the holiday. But Halloween does indeed originate much closer to home. And it can be traced back to the ancient Celtic festival of Samhain. Although even that's up for debate.
1: I fall into the Celtic Samhain uh, side of things. Um, Just to briefly frame what the debate is, the idea is that does Halloween stem primarily from a Celtic holiday called Samhain that was co-opted by Catholic missionaries? Or does it stem from the actual Catholic holiday, which is All Saints Day? Celebrated on November 1st. Now, I know that uh, there is some argument for a sort of macabre side to All Saints Day, especially when you add on All Souls Day, which is the November 2nd holiday. Um, But to me, that is not enough to tell us where this holiday came from. I think Halloween's macabre and spookier side absolutely goes back to the the Celtic holiday. Um, for them, it was a, their New Year's festival. So it was that time when they thought that that borders were down, that the veil between this world and the other world of the she or the malevolent fairies was at its thinnest. And these things could cross over and could wreak havoc on that night. So it was a very frightening time for them. We know they told ghost stories. We don't know a lot else about how they celebrated because they didn't keep written histories but to me it seems fairly clear that that is the origin of the sort of frightening side of halloween
0: we have an understanding that halloween is wrapped up in things like the harvest and that this time of year is both a very spiritual time of year it's a it's a time of rebirth it's a time of celebration depending on what you believe and, and what your ideology is as we as we drift into the winter, but it it's it didn't start out the way we potentially think it did, and it hasn't necessarily ended up where people would would think it would. I, I give you one example as a as a Brit, Lisa, if, if I may. For many years, because of Henry VIII's spat with Rome, and because we were a Catholic country, and then we weren't, this notion of Halloween being a Catholic celebration was suppressed by Protestants, King James, you know, in particular, if you think of narrative as propaganda, Shakespeare was, I mean, is classic Tudor propaganda, and he hardly mentions, you know, this uh, at all. So for a long time in this country, in terms of literature and popular culture, there's no mention uh, of Halloween. So there are, there's this sense that for several not just decades, but centuries, there's that gap in our history. Meanwhile, in in your country, in in, in North America, this is developing a, a sort of unstoppable momentum, isn't it?
1: Well, although the timelines don't quite match up, um, it doesn't really hit the US until the 1840s. And it hits the US when the Irish and Scottish immigrants are fleeing the famine and arrive here in, in droves, where it continues while it is suppressed in Britain is in, in Ireland and in Scotland. Um, and we have, of course, the things like that magnificent 1785 poem by Robert Burns called Halloween, which describes in detail, it's a very long poem in detail, what a Scottish Halloween celebration was like at the end of the 18th century. And it, by the way, it sounds like great fun. It sounds like an awesome party. But yes, all Catholic um, holidays were suppressed in, I forget the exact date, it was the mid 17th century. And um, this is one of the reasons that Guy Fawkes Day comes to prominence. Guy Fawkes Day comes in to almost fulfill that need for a fall holiday when they say, oh, no, no, you can't have All Saints Day because it's a Catholic celebration.
0: It is interesting. If you try and explain Guy Fawkes Day or Bonfire Night to Mainly a, a North American that's not familiar with that. It, it has quite an extraordinary reaction to say that the celebration is you are essentially setting fire to things in the street and and letting them off. But but it, it's that reality, isn't it? You know that forks would forks would quite clearly be be categorised as a terrorist now for trying to blow up Parliament and the King um, and to create that form of of insurrection. But that was a celebration of the the fact that he was unsuccessful, primarily because it was not a Catholic story. Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yes, he he actually was part of a large ring of terrorists who wanted to blow up the House of Parliament. And they uh, set 36 barrels of gunpowder under the Houses of Parliament. He was the guy who was supposed to set it all off, which is why he was the one who was captured first and the holidays named after him. But there were many of his co-conspirators who were also captured and brought to justice. And it was almost immediately became a tremendously popular yearly festival in uh, England. And, And it was, I think, 1605 is when this happens. And I think by like 1608, it is declared a national holiday, and it is celebrated all over the country. And uh, it just kind of keeps snowballing from there, especially after they also suppress all those Catholic holidays
0: there is a sense of this festival, as I said earlier, being all things to all people or whatever you want it to be there 's something there for you. This notion of all saints versus all souls, where people wanted to celebrate their own lost loved ones who weren't saints there is a there is a divide they are two different things. I wonder if we could just touch on for the listeners, what is the subtlety of the difference between those two celebrations?
1: Yeah, they um, are, for one thing, obviously, actually on two distinct days, November 1st for All Saints, November 2nd for All Souls. There's a little bit of debate, by the way, as to why All Souls was added, because it comes in about four centuries after All Saints Day is set to November 1st, um one theory is that it, it was to satisfy all of the Catholic parishioners who said, hey, it's nice that we have a holiday to remember our saints, but we want one to remember our, our own dead loved ones. But the other thinking, and again, this is kind of the side I'm on, goes, well, the Catholic Church was not entirely successful in converting the Celts away from Samhain with just All Saints Day. So they added a second day. To extend that celebration. And All Souls Day is actually much spookier than All Saints Day. Um, I would be much more in the camp that says that that may have contributed to Halloween's uh, more fearful side, because it was about your dead loved ones, and some of them might be trapped in purgatory. And there were rituals involving beggars who would, for example, go from house to house and offer to say prayers for your loved ones who were trapped in purgatory, and you might reward them with a little cake. So there was a guising ritual involved with All Souls Day that was very particular to that day. They even called that um, souling, or uh, the little cakes were soul cakes. And um, it's interesting too, that you can also look at All Souls Day and compare it to Dia de los Muertos in Mexico which is a fascinating holiday because it's what you get if you take the Celtic influence out of Halloween and give it instead a Mesoamerican, Mayan and Aztec history. And it is um, much more closely aligned to All Souls' Day than All Saints' Day.
0: Chapter Two, Jack of the Lantern. (laughs) Although ghosts frighten us, and many religions use the threat of eternal torment to control through fear, we still love the idea that death is not the end. For many people, regardless of what they believe is awaiting them, it's somewhat comforting to think that life simply doesn't stop, that we might still be able to contact our loved ones once we've shuffled off this mortal coil. But does eternal life on the other side of the veil really sound comforting? Is that really what we want? If we look at the story of Jack O'Lantern, we start to see how suffocating and trapping eternity could be. You see, in Jack's case, there was no home awaiting him after death, as neither heaven nor hell would permit him entry.
1: Yeah, that's our uh, legend behind the Jack O'Lantern. The big, happy-looking carved pumpkin is actually based on one of the most popular legends in the Western world. There are hundreds of variants of Jack the Trickster. Um, also known as Stingy Jack. Um, Jack was, in most versions of the story, was a blacksmith who tricked the devil out of taking his soul three times. So when Jack finally dies, the devil says, I don't want you in hell, you're going to trick me again. And of course, heaven doesn't want to let this guy in. So the devil reluctantly throws Jack a burning hell ember which Jack puts into a carved gourd and uses to light his way as he just eternally wanders the earth denied entrance to both heaven and hell. And so the idea of this glowing carved gourd ends up becoming that jack-o'-lantern that becomes so famous uh, for Halloween. And that was originally a prank that it probably dates back to at least the 18th century, probably earlier that, Irish kids were doing with turnips. They didn't have pumpkins, of course, in Ireland, but they had these big turnips that they could carve out. And they would, on Halloween night, would place that carved turnip somewhere where an unwary traveler might be going along a dark road at night and come across this thing. And, and it would suddenly be very alarmed to see a glowing face and might even be thinking of the stories of Jack the Trickster as soon as they see that.
0: It's It's a wonderful narrative. There's a there's a notion of chaos that surrounds the holiday and the festival and, and, and everything that, that is is pertinent to Halloween, in particular in relation to, to children, when the population in the US particularly was perhaps slightly more rural than it was urban. It was a time for mischief, wasn't it? Kids would play pranks on, on neighbors.
1: Yeah, it uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, that is almost entirely what the holiday was. In the U.S. at least, it was all about prank playing. And the prank playing at first was fairly innocent. The kids might run out on Halloween night to a neighbor's house and rattle the window. They had a special little toy called a, a tic-tac that they would roll along the window that would make a dreadful sound. And Or they might do more elaborate pranks. Um, They would actually disassemble things and move them somewhere else. And I have an amazing postcard that's from an Iowa town in, I think, 1910 that shows the main street of the town the morning after Halloween. And it is full of things like buggies that the kids have unassembled one place and reassembled in the middle of this street. And there are even bathtubs piled on top of it. It's incredible what they were doing. But that became problematic because by the time you get into the 20s and 30s, as America becomes more urbanized and bigger and these pranksters move into the cities, now the pranks are more about setting fires and destroying light fixtures and breaking windows and tripping people. And they actually are now causing millions of dollars worth of damage which is the point um, when a lot of the cities start to think about banning the holiday there. 1933, many newspapers actually referred to it that year as black Halloween. And it was of course also the height of the great depression, which means there wasn't even a lot of money to repair these things that these kids were breaking. And fortunately um, a few of the cities got these civic committees together and decided that maybe the more effective way to deal with these kids was not to ban the holiday but to buy them off and that proved very effective and that's where we get trick or treat from
0: that's that that is absolutely fantastic just given the time period that that we're in i, I assume that the the origins of the treats were i mean are we talking sugar-based candy is that is that what we were talking about or, or are they are they getting a nickel or a dime or, or what, what were they being given to be bought off
1: well the very first things were homemade uh things like uh fresh donuts or cider or popcorn balls or apples and um it's not until after world war ii which kind of puts a hiatus on everything Um, after World War II, uh, trick-or-treat just explodes in popularity. And one of the reasons is that the candy companies at that point come in and start their huge advertising blitzes. And they're essentially saying to all the moms all over the U.S., hey, you don't have to spend all day making those treats. We're going to make them for you. And, of course, that becomes very, very popular and successful.
0: In terms of there is a huge marketing campaign. I know you've included statistics about supermarkets and how much of their revenue um, is associated with this, you know, behind, I think you reference Easter and Christmas. Um, It is now perhaps, you know, it's it's the next one, you know, down in in terms of its popularity. Could we talk, because I'm fascinated by this, and I don't, I didn't know anything about this. And I don't know nearly as much about this as I would like to. But could we touch on, we all know about Coca-Cola's association with Santa Claus and Christmas there is as I understand it a fascinating story about the brewing company Coors and it being have I got this right the official Halloween beer could you could you touch on that for us Lisa
1: yeah in uh, I think it was 1983 Coors was their sales were kind of lagging behind their competitors and and they were looking at what their competitors were doing. And and they saw huge sales on certain days of the year, like Super Bowl Sunday was a, a gigantic one, and St. Patrick's Day. And so Coors started thinking in terms of, is there a holiday that we could co-opt that hasn't really been used yet for beer sales? And they fixed on Halloween. And their uh, first attempt was not incredibly successful. Their first attempt was to create a mascot called the Beer Wolf. And they featured the wolf in their ads for about two years. Um, The sales were, I guess, modestly improved, not exactly through the roof. And then in 1980, I think it's either 85 or 86, they get smart enough to change. They get rid of the wolf and they hire a local Los Angeles horror movie hostess named Elvira. And they fill every supermarket in the U.S. with life-size standees of Elvira. And those beer sales go nuclear. I mean, they just went nuts. And so Elvira was the spokesman for the Coors Halloween beer campaigns for several, many years after that. And it established, it was one of the things actually that helped to turn Halloween even more into an adult holiday.
0: I had the good fortune in 2016 to spend several months in Los Angeles and that overlapped with Halloween. And I I knew that it was a big deal in the US. I wasn't quite prepared for how big a deal it was. People's yards and gardens, they become almost theatres for the macabre. It, it's, If you've never seen it, it it's hard to sort of put into words the levels that people go to to decorate their houses, their garages, they, their, their yards. It is, I mean, I've only seen it in, in LA, but I was absolutely staggered. It looked like, well, it looked like the end of the world. It was it was actually quite disturbing. You know, you'd be walking home late at night and you're thinking, why are there gravestones everywhere? This is ridiculous.
1: It is huge. And um, the the haunted attractions industry overall is another thing that really helped convert the holiday to an adult festival. And um, there was, it's interesting that 1983 is kind of a pivotal year because that same year, there's a businessman on the East Coast who gets the idea of creating a pop-up Halloween store. And and that store was Spirit Halloween. And those things are now, there's over a thousand of them every year that pop up usually around August or September. And one of the, the things that Spirit helped change was exactly that in terms of home decorations. Now you no longer had to be content with throwing some fake cobwebs into your front yard. You could buy a very detailed and realistic audio animatronic figure that for under $200 that you put in your front yard. So it allowed homeowners the opportunity to create sort of miniature versions of the big professional haunts. And it's one of the reasons that Spirit has become such a gigantic operation as well.
0: Behind the Spine is an attempt to inspire you to write and to shine a light on things that might provide a creative spark for your stories. Now we want to go one stage further. We want to offer you an outlet for your work. Over the course of the show, we've uncovered dozens of lessons that have been extracted from over 50 fascinating conversations. We've picked three, and we'd like you to narrow this down to one. Pick one of the lessons we've selected and write a short story of no more than a thousand words and send it to us. At the end of the series, we'll pick two winners. We'll pay each writer £250 for the right to use their story as part of series four. Go to BehindTheSpine.co.uk and click on the writing competition for more details. But now, back to the show. Chapter 3. The Veil Between Worlds Dressing up, telling scary stories, going door to door requesting sweets from your neighbours. Halloween sounds like a festival for children, and yet it captivates adults just the same. In part, we have Hollywood to thank for that, John Carpenter changed the game and created a horror revolution with his film Halloween, which continues to inspire many spin-offs to this day. Very quickly, the gruesome side of Halloween was unleashed and the holiday started to morph into something else entirely.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. Halloween is a, a hugely impactful movie in, in many respects. I mean, not only was it one of the most successful independent films ever made and and created the whole genre of the slasher movies that would fill up our 80s screens, of course. But it really had a humongous impact on the holiday. I, I think of it as the linchpin that finally completely transforms this holiday into an adult holiday. Before that, in the 70s, Halloween, by the way, is 1978 when it comes out. There were a few, you could see the holiday kind of veering in that direction in earlier in the 70s, because in large part, there were counterculture groups that were coming in and kind of claiming the holiday. LGBTQ was um, taking over a large part of it. And with things like the Greenwich Village Parade, pagan groups and communities were, of course, uh, claiming parts of the holiday, and it was starting to transform into that adult thing. But Along comes this movie in 78, which is the first time that the holiday has been painted as something absolutely terrifying. Um, It's no longer a cute kids thing. We're not talking it's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown anymore. We are now talking something that is absolutely terrifying and suspenseful and a thriller and for adults only. I I would hope no one took their kids to see Halloween um, because they were traumatized for life, I'm sure. But it really changed the holiday forever. And, and I think of um, that first Halloween, not obviously not the later remakes, but the first one as being one of the most culturally impactful films. There are very, very few films that have the kind of massive impact on culture that that
0: one did. You mentioned LGBTQ. I, there's perhaps no better example than that than the Rocky Horror Picture Show, is there? That That really, to go to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show on Halloween That's a huge deal, and everybody gets dressed up.
1: Oh, yeah, of course. And we could look at that film and say that was a film that extended Halloween beyond just October 31st with weekly celebrations at many theaters.
0: Absolutely. Um, There are more, perhaps, modern films in the book. You talk about uh, J.K. Rowling, you talk about Harry Potter, and there are clear references to either dark noir or gothic or Halloween that run through that. There is a particular sequence in Prisoner of Azkaban where there are huge pumpkins and goods sat outside Hagrid's office. But that's a refrain that beats throughout that entire franchise is this notion of the other world, the veil between the two worlds that you so beautifully talk about. And it's incredibly impactful to to think about that. But that's a very interesting example of, not just children being associated with halloween but the darker aspect to it things like the death eaters things like haunted castles ghosts being stuck between you know between places it's a really good interpretation of halloween isn't it
1: yeah it absolutely is and of course the whole thing is about witches i mean they are essentially all witches it certainly also created a marketing boom which drove halloween sales i'm sure for a few years um, continues to of course but uh, another film that we probably should mention that was really had a, a huge marketing thing for the the holiday too was Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas right. which came out I th- think a few years before the first Harry Potter film and uh, had such incredible design and they are still marketing the heck out of that movie more than twenty years later, thirty years later now. Um, and it's interesting to me that you can even now, for example, I just got an email the other day for a Nightmare Before Christmas cuckoo clock. I mean, <laughs> how they market that is amazing.
0: <laughs> That's great. You mentioned witches. Could we talk about? Can you take us back to the? When did that? you know, the notion of witches and witchcraft and indeed witch hunts, when did that become associated with Halloween? Is that another example of, you know, trying to scare people into talking about what was a Catholic celebration by a Protestant monarchy?
1: Yeah, you just nailed it. There is no mention whatsoever of witches being associated with Halloween prior to the 16th century, at least none that I could find. And then King James, when he is still King James of Scotland, comes in. And James was obsessed with witches. He was obsessed with um, demonology. He wrote a book of that title, Demonology. And I have this under his uh, reign in Scotland is the first time we see witches being associated with Hall- Halloween. He undersaw a, or oversaw rather a series of um very famous witch trials. And in those witch trials, we get these confessions from the witches in which they are saying that All Saints Eve is one of their big Sabbaths. This is the first time we see this. And I suspect it was a convenient way for him to a horrifyingly, no pun intended, kill two birds with one stone, that he was able to both associate a Catholic holiday with these people who were believed to be doing great evil and get a confession out of them that he could use to continue his demonology uh, studies and so forth. And at that point, from there on is when we start to see witches being much more a central part of All Saints and All Souls Day.
0: You, you, you mentioned the attempt to instill fear. That, that's a notion that surrounds a lot of children's stories and ghost stories, and indeed, you know, urban myths and legends that we talk about in order to prevent people from, you know, whatever you do, don't go to the insert place, it doesn't matter. But it's it's an attempt to, to keep people away. And there is something about that sort of story that it, it does have an impact, there will always be people who want to rebel and go and have a look at it. But if you if you go back to the time you're talking about and there is this notion of witches and you, you talk a lot in your in your literature about you know the old lady and the broom and the black cat all of this imagery that surrounds the notion of witches it is designed to keep you from wanting to do whatever the monarch or the government don't want you to do
1: yeah absolutely and i if you go back even earlier, There probably are some very specific reasons that the witches were thought to be these older women who often lived on the outskirts of the village, something like that. Which is that much of the witch hunting craze was about claiming property. And it was much easier to claim the property of a single older woman who was probably widowed or may have never married. Um, So it was easier to lodge the charges against her and knowing also that she may not have defenders, and then to claim her property. Um, and that was a significant part of the whole witch hunting craze. So I kind of am a believer in that notion that that probably is part of the reason we have that sort of old crone association with the witch.
0: You, you talked about Mexico and the de los Muertos, you talked about the Mayan influence, you talked about that coming together of, of many different cultures. Halloween, All Saints, it is not a public holiday here in the UK. We don't get the day off. I was staggered to learn that there is one state, and I wasn't staggered to learn which state it is. Where I, Am I right? It, it is All Saints that is a public holiday in the state of, and I guess everyone will probably be shouting, Louisiana at the radio right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That is the only state in which November 1st is a legal holiday
0: and and quite clearly if anybody has ever been to new orleans this notion of of hoodoo voodoo this notion of magic this notion of the spirit world that's not a surprise is it but that's not a new thing that 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 influence has always been there in in the state of louisiana is that right
1: it has although the all saints day thing in louisiana probably did, is probably
0: descended more from
1: the the french side of that particular state because um all Saints Day is, is still a significant holiday in France, and um, in fact, France is one of the few areas that has sort of pushed Halloween away in favor of celebrating All Saints Day, which, of course, is a much more somber observance. You go to the graveyard, you clean, decorate the of your loved ones um and so that probably has more to do with why louisiana is the only state that has that day off rather than any sort of magical or um, voodoo relation
0: we we're speaking um a, a week before halloween um what are your plans for the festival on the holiday lisa what will you, where would you be spending halloween
1: Uh, I will be spending it at home, partly because my engagements go right up until (laughs) they actually continue until slightly after sundown on Halloween night. But um, about um, seven years ago, we bought our first house and, and we always loved yard haunts, the little things we were talking about earlier. And So we now do our own um, very small scale yard hunt, but we have so much fun with it. And so I will be here after my engagements on Halloween night, um, watching kids come up and take their parents will force them to pose for photos with scary things and we will enjoy every second of it.
0: Well, Lisa, we know this is your busy time, but we really appreciate you coming on. One of your many books on this topic is Trick or Treat, The History of Halloween. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Mark. This was great fun.
0: Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Lisa Morton for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Halloween stories and traditions are constantly being reimagined. Feel at liberty to tell old stories But make sure you do it in new and creative ways. There are no new stories, just new ways of telling them. Just as Halloween was changed from a children's celebration to a gore fest for adults, you too can experiment with altering the narrative of a well-known story. People love a celebration. As a writer, you should look to bring your community of readers and viewers together so that they can feel a part of something bigger you can make social media groups, encourage them to mark a specific day in the calendar, host events, and so much more. You should question associations you believe to be true. Although it's common knowledge that witches and Halloween are intimately linked, history tells a different story. Always look deeper, and never make assumptions. And finally, if you want to placate children stop them from destroying everything, sweets do the trick every single time. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. In the meantime, give us a like and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oli Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.